on August 3rd, 2007, just about three, almost four weeks ago, I received an email. And it said simply this, Dear Preacher, can you please send me scriptures on baptism and salvation? My name is Shea Adair. I'm trying to search this out, and I'm looking for help. Thanks so much. Over the next week and a half, I had multiple emails and several phone conversations with Shay. And we studied the issues of baptism and once saved, always saved. And she had told me that she had come from a Southern Baptist background. However, a friend of hers had challenged her regarding her understanding of baptism and said, well, look, just find some passages that teach what you believe about baptism and you can give them back to me. And she said, well, I said, fine, I'll do it. Said I got very mad that I started looking and I couldn't find anything that taught what I believed about baptism. In fact, what I found was that it said that baptism is essential for salvation. And so we studied that issue over the week and a half. She told me that her husband was very upset about her study. And the more convicted she became, the angrier he got, beginning with accusing her of not being submissive to her husband, all the way to finally saying that if she made this decision, she, he was going to divorce her. A week ago Saturday, she had a lunch with some friends up in Nashville and wanted to meet with me face to face. And so Marita and the kids and I met her here at the building. We talked for a few moments and she decided to be baptized. And there was much rejoicing and we were excited and we immediately sent off emails to, to everyone about it. We watched the introductory video to your first 10 days as a Christian, sent her off with a prayer and a Godspeed and hoping she was going to make contact with a friend of ours down in Huntsville, which is where she lived, and hopefully through that friend make contact with the congregation. At about 5.18 last Saturday afternoon, she called me and said, well, I'm almost home. I'm about to tell my husband, John, would you please pray with me? And so I did. And then I didn't hear back from her that evening. I began to get worried on Sunday when I called her immediately following our morning assembly trying to find out if she'd made contact with the church and I didn't get an answer. And so, right before our evening assembly last week, I called again, but she didn't answer. Instead, her sister, Stephanie, answered. And Stephanie proceeded to tell me through that conversation that she had gone home, told her husband that she had been baptized for the remission of her sins, and that he flipped out and beat her up. Later that evening, she called me again after our assembly was over while I was at home to inform me that the baby, Shay, had just found out she was carrying had died. And then later that evening, called me to say that they had to go in and do an emergency hysterectomy, that she was still losing blood, they couldn't figure out why, and they couldn't stop it, and they didn't know which way it was going to go. Most of Monday, she spent the day in the hospital unconscious, clinging to life. However, as Monday progressed, there started to be some things that didn't add up. A friend in Huntsville who had a police officer within the congregation tried to find out about the husband's arrest and found out that there was no arrest, there was no warrant, there was no police report, despite the fact that she had gone to the hospital claiming domestic abuse, and it's a law to report it. 
contacts in the Huntsville Hospital. Could not find anybody of that name or even description. And so Monday night, I went to bed wondering what on earth is going on. On the one hand, beginning to fear that something wasn't right, but on the other hand, feeling guilty that I even remotely thought that someone would ever lie about this. I mean, as my friend Terry said, you know, something you just can't make some things up. By Tuesday morning, I had found out a supposed hospital and a floor, and so I drove down to Huntsville, went to the Huntsville Hospital, searched in the surgical ICU, and we found at the hospital that nobody by that name had been admitted, that nobody was even there, possibly under an assumed name that they weren't allowed to tell us about, and that nobody matching that surgical description had entered the hospital on Sunday night. And while we were in the hospital, I received a call from another preacher who said, I've got some information for you. And found out that at another congregation in Alabama, in fact, in two other congregations in Alabama, this almost exact same thing happened last year. And we have come to be convinced that in at least three congregations, this exact same person, pretending to be multiple different persons, has perpetrated this exact same hoax. In the worst case scenario, we have somebody here who is just a malicious liar who wants to toy with our faith and make light of it make light of our own suffering, and extort our emotions. In the best case scenario, we're dealing with a very troubled individual who is suffering from an addictive relationship disorder that you might have heard of called factitious disorder. seems not many people have heard of that one. Perhaps you've heard of Munchausen syndrome. Typically folks have heard of that one. Munchausen's is a very specific form of this broader topic called factitious disorder. Factitious disorder. Factitious, not fictitious, factitious, F-A-C-T. This is a disorder where in order to gain sympathy and attention and support from people, a person will make up illnesses or stories of illnesses, sometimes stories of death in the family. Sometimes they'll even go so far as to actually make themselves sick in order to receive that kind of attention that they want. Sometimes they'll make somebody else in the family sick. Factitious disorder, from my study, I'm told it's caused sometimes by personality disorders, child abuse, the wish to repeat a satisfying childhood relationship with a doctor, the desire to deceive or to deceive or test authority figures, and the wish to assume the role of patient and to be cared for. So we've either been preyed on by a malicious sinner or by a suffering addict. In any case, the person last week that we announced that we needed to pray for still needs our prayers. Probably even more than she did last Sunday. But for different reasons. I don't know how you guys have felt about this story. And for those who aren't members of the congregation that hadn't heard of this story, I'm kind of sorry that you have to be here when we discuss this very personal issue that's affected us deeply here, but I hope that you can gain some lessons from what we're going to talk about today. But I don't know how the rest of you have felt, but i got to tell you, this week has just been awful for me. 
Sunday night was an absolutely deflating and discouraging experience. Monday, I spent most of the day depressed, but even though I knew it wasn't my fault that I was to blame for our new sister in Christ lying in the hospital somewhere, dying because her husband had beaten her. Then Tuesday, I spent all day upset and angry because I found out it was a hoax, and yet, I mean, it was the most amazing thing I've ever felt in my life because on the one hand, mentally, I knew I'd been duped and passed on the charade to the others, but on the other hand, emotionally, I was upset at myself for even questioning the story and feeling extremely guilty about doing that. And so I don't know how you guys have felt. This has been like a roller coaster all week long for me. But having said all that, I I actually have, have learned some things this week. Some things that I'd like to share with you about this story, as crazy and bizarre as it is. Even though we found out that, in fact, some things can be made up. I'd like to share some things that Shay has taught me this week. And I hope that they can help you as well. Shay has taught me about evangelism and fear. Matthew 28 and verse 19. Matthew 28 and verse 19 says, Go, therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And yet most of the time, what we hope is that this passage says to all the prospects, come and we'll show you the gospel and we'll teach you how to be saved. That's what was so exciting about this, is here was a person, we didn't even have to do anything. And how many of us wish for that person that would just come along, just happen to drop into our midst, and we don't have to do really hardly any work, give them a nudge here, a nudge there, and they'll just, they figure out the truth on their own, and all we have to do is be the person that takes them to the water and dunks them. You know, the reality is, even if the story of Shea had been true, it would be one in a million. I mean, I'm sure there are some stories like that. But one in a million. And if it had been true and we had baptized Shea, we would have been deceiving ourselves to believe that we had been doing our job of evangelism. The Bible says, go! It doesn't tell them to come. Our job is not to sit around and wait for emails because somebody's seen our advertising or run across our website. Our job is not to wait for somebody to drop into our midst because they've driven past our building and seen our sign. Our job is to go. And brethren, you know, the reality is we may not ever find anybody, but our job is still to go and to look and to teach. But there's another aspect of this that I learned this week. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to your conscience. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And yet, most of us live as though this verse says, knowing the fear of rejection, we don't persuade anyone. It struck me. On Monday when I was still believing the story and I was passing it out on email and had it on my blog and it was going all over the world, 
One thing I heard over and over and over again was, I've never heard anything like this. I've never heard anything like this. If I heard it once, brethren, I heard it a hundred times. I heard it from people here. I heard it in emails. I heard it in phone calls. If, you know, I have never heard anything like this, at least not in America. And it dawned on me. Why are we so afraid to talk to people about the gospel? You know, I understand if we had heard these kind of stories every other day, that we might be afraid to talk to people. We might be afraid to invite them to our assemblies. We might be afraid to talk to them about Jesus. We might be afraid to discuss Christ's church. But the reality is, we've never heard this kind of story. We've never heard of anybody getting beat up because they talked to somebody about the gospel. Not here in the States. And I worry that we're going to get to heaven someday, get to judgment, and God's going to say, did you read Matthew 28, 19, where I said, go? And what are we going to say? Well, God, I wanted to, but I was really afraid they'd call me names. Lord, I wanted to, but I was really afraid they wouldn't let me come to their parties anymore. Lord, I I wanted to, but I was afraid they wouldn't hang out with me anymore. Lord, I wanted to, but I was afraid they would think we thought we were the only ones going to heaven. I'm just not sure any of those excuses are going to hold much water. We never heard anything like this. So what are we so afraid of? Shay taught me about evangelism and fear. Shay taught me to be willing to be an example of faith. One of the things that has repeatedly been asked, especially when finding out that she carried on this story with another church for between six to nine months, How on earth can somebody do something like that? I know the answer. I know how somebody can do that. Because we want to believe her story. We want to believe it. She didn't have to convince us. We wanted it to be true. And so little things that cropped up that didn't make sense, we we just figured that was, well, that'll that'll resolve itself. I mean, the reality is we want to believe that somebody in a denomination can open up their Bible and find the truth for themselves. We wanted to believe that. We wanted to believe that somebody would be so convicted by what they read in Scripture that they would do it anyway, no matter what their family would do. We wanted to believe that somebody could have such a great faith that even though her husband said, I'm going to leave you, she would do it anyway. I know we didn't want to believe necessarily that her husband beat her so bad that her baby had died and she was lying in the hospital, hanging on to life. But you know what? We wanted to believe that there was somebody who would cling to faith no matter what would happen to them. We wanted that example. I wanted that example. Last Sunday night, while I was trying to preach about the Good Samaritan, I was already beginning to work on the sermon that would take place today that would set up this example of this person that we could view as a modern martyr, as somebody that could be kind of a rallying cry, somebody that could be a modern example. We didn't have to reach back 2,000 years and talk about Paul or talk about Peter. We could talk about somebody with us today. We wanted that. And so it was easy to believe. And even now, 100% convinced that it was all a hoax, there's still part of me that kind of hopes in the back of my mind that we're going to find out that no, actually it was all true, you've just been mistaken. (laughs) Even though I know that's not going to happen. You see, we wanted that example. 
we sure didn't want that example to be me. It was good when it was her. She's not that example. So who's it going to be? Who's going to be that example for us? 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12, Paul told Timothy, Let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Who's going to be that example of faith for us? Who is it that we're going to be able to look to who says, I'm going to demonstrate my faith, I'm going to follow the will of God no matter what anybody thinks or what anybody does? I suggest instead of us looking for some mystical shag, we start looking to ourselves. We should be that example. I should, you should be the example of faith and conviction and not wait for somebody else to take up that mantle. Che taught me that even though we are not a denomination, we are a family. Look in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, actually beginning at verse 1, Peter said to the elders, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. We follow this passage. We recognize that, that, that we should be and are an independent congregation. We are autonomous, that is, self-governing. We are not connected by any association, by any denomination, by any relationship like that of governing hierarchy with any other congregation. We have our own shepherds who exercise oversight over this flock and no other and answer to the chief shepherd and him alone, and that's it. And so when this story was progressing and I wanted to talk to people about praying about this woman I didn't call my pastor or my bishop or my cardinal or my archbishop or my convention representative, and I didn't pass it on up the chain of hierarchy so that they could email all the churches in the denomination or organization because it's just not there. But I'll tell you what I did. I told Christians who told Christians who told Christians who told Christians, and it was amazing. It was amazing who was praying for this young lady. In fact, who is still praying for this young lady even though they know the truth. It was stunning. I'll tell you, the states in red, these are people that I know where they live and I was able to find out where prayers were being offered for this young lady. On Monday, less than 24 hours from when we had found out about this, Tennessee, Alabama, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Connecticut, Texas, Florida, Virginia, West Virginia, Arizona, Wisconsin, Kentucky, Illinois, Ohio, Washington, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, Indiana, Kansas, New Mexico, California, Minnesota, Oregon, Maryland, Oklahoma, Missouri, Louisiana, and I even knew of people praying for in Canada and Australia. The Internet's an amazing thing. How does that happen? happens because we're not a denomination, brethren, but we are a family. And people in our family care about each other. 28 states. And those are just the ones that I know where they're from. That's not counting all the people that, that responded on my blog or through email or through phone calls, and I don't even know where they live. 
It wouldn't surprise me a bit if there were people in every state in the union praying for it. Mark 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus says, no matter what we have to leave behind when we come into the family of God, we gain a hundredfold in brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. We're part of a family. I'm glad to be part of it. How about you? This is what is out there when we are in need. Just think about it. How many times have we heard from members about brothers and sisters in other places? Who was the friend of a friend of a friend? And they asked us to pray for them. And what did we do? We prayed for them. And we asked if there was anything we could do. Could we send them something? Help them in any way? We're not a denomination. And we don't need to be a denomination because we're a family. The way they were in the New Testament. Shay's taught me why we need this family and why I'm glad to be a part of it. And right now, I'm not talking about the bigger family. I'm talking about this family right here in this room. I could be completely wrong about whoever Shay Adair really is. But one of the reasons this kind of story, this, this type of thing happens in a person's life, because they don't have a support net. Sometimes this happens because they don't have anybody to fall back on. The supposed sister has told me a story of a huge family that is there to take care of its own. And that's, of course, why none of us get to be there to help out, why we're not allowed to visit her in the hospital. But you know, the reality is, when somebody's involved in a big family who takes care of its own, they don't have to make up stories to try to get love and support from other people. We're a part of the family. We've got a support net. When we have troubles, we have people to call. And there's, there's 140 people that we can call on who will be there for us. And so we don't feel the need to make up stories to get people to start loving us. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 2 talked about their hearts being encouraged, being knit together in love. That's the way our hearts should be. And you know what? That's the way our hearts are. That's the way the hearts, at least, 
of those who are here who've made connection with other Christians. I mean, I guess maybe I can't speak for everybody because I know that there are some folks that even though they become a member of a congregation, they're loners. And then they wonder why they never feel good about the church. Well, you start making connection with other people. And you've got a support system. You've got a net. You've got people to fall back on. You want to know something, though? I'll tell you, this has actually been a backhanded compliment of us. And i got to tell you, of non-institutional churches of Christ, which, which are so often labeled as being uncaring and uncompassionate, I just can't help but wonder why she's already picked out three non-institutional congregations to play this game on. You know why? Because she knew she'd be able to get love and support there. Why'd she pick us? Because she knew she would get love and support here. That's what we've got here. And I'm glad to be part of it. I'm glad that you're my family. Because I know, even if I don't have any problems right now, you're there for me. And when I do have real problems, I know where I can turn. And I just want to say thank you for that. And so, I guess we still need to ask the question, where do we go from here? I'm sorry to our guests who came in thinking they were just going to get a nice little brief lesson and be out of here by 11. You know, I, as I thought about this part of the lesson, I was trying to figure out how I was going to word it, and I thought of something, a little book that somebody had given me. I don't know if you all have ever heard of it. It's called Anyway. It's a great little book. If you haven't ever read it, go get it. But it's based on something that you've probably seen shuffled around the Internet called the Paradoxical Commandments. And I'm just going to read it to you quickly. It says, people are illogical, unreasonable, and self-centered. Love them anyway. If you do good, people will accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Do good anyway. If you are successful, you will win false friends and true enemies. Succeed anyway. The good you do today will be forgotten tomorrow. Do good anyway. Honesty and frankness make you vulnerable. Be honest and frank anyway. The biggest men and women with the biggest ideas can be shot down by the smallest men and women with the smallest minds. Think big anyway. People favor underdogs but follow only top dogs. Fight for a few underdogs anyway. What you spend your years building may be destroyed overnight. Build anyway. People really need help but may attack you if you do help them. Help people anyway. Give the world the best you have, and you'll get kicked in the teeth. Give the world the best you have anyway. I remembered that, and I thought, you know, that really fits with where we are. And so where do we go from here? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Some translations say excel still more. This passage points out to us that we're supposed to love more and more. On Sunday night, we love. 
On Monday, we loved. On Tuesday, that love was crumpled up and thrown back in our faces. And it might be very easy for us to close down and back off and say, you know, I'm just not going to do that anymore. And start testing and, and, and waiting before we love people. And even back off on our love for this young lady. I'm going to tell you what. We need to pursue love anyway. Because God has said that we're supposed to love. And you know, perhaps sometime in the past, if somebody had continued to love this young lady, she might not be having this problem now. Additionally, I find it interesting. It's almost ironic. Last Sunday night, I don't know if, you, if any of you who are here actually even remember the sermon last Sunday night. I, I mean, I, I kind of forgot what I was even preaching while I was up here because of what was going on. So if you don't remember it, I won't hold it over your head. But you might remember that we talked about the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. And one of the points that we made was that when you love people and you do good to them and you act with compassion and mercy, you make yourself vulnerable. Isn't that ironic? I have, this is the most bizarre thing I've ever been involved in, but I've been taken for a ride numerous times. Uh, if y'all want to know what I mean, y'all just come hang out in the office for a month or two and just find out the stories that get told of, of people who are dying somewhere and how they don't have money to get anywhere. And oh, I mean, I've been taken for rides more times than I can count. And just when that happens, it's easy to become cynical. It's easy to become hard-hearted and close down and back off when it comes to mercy and compassion. We see somebody in financial need and our response can become very easily, go get a job. We see somebody who's having emotional need and we say to them, why don't you just buck up and get over it? We see somebody who's struggling spiritually over and over again, and we say, you know, would you just grow up and quit being so weak? But Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they receive mercy. We may act with compassion and mercy and get kicked in the teeth, but we need to act with compassion anyway. And I don't know about you, but sometimes it seems like nobody wants to hear the message of God. And that even the one time that we find somebody who seems to want it, we find out it's all a lie. And if you're like me, at times that causes you just want to give up. Quit trying. We'll just stay here in our holy huddle and we'll enjoy salvation and we'll just let everybody else go to hell. But we need to remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 19. Go and make disciples. We may want to give up, but we need to teach the gospel anyway. Where do we go from here? We keep looking to the Lord. We keep loving. 
We keep asking with compassion. And we keep getting the saving message of the gospel out to others and let them decide what they're going to do with it. Our job, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, is to plant and water. God's the one who will give the increase. That's God's job. It's not our job to soften Shay's heart and make her become a real Christian. It's our job to get the message out and let folks do with it what they will. So let's keep teaching the gospel anyway. You know, this has been a bizarre, awful roller coaster week. I'm behind on everything now. Hopefully, we'll still get to have our fall focus. But there's a part of me that's still glad this happened. Because I've learned a lot this week. And I hope you've been able to learn something from it too.